Scientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. We are kicking off our 10th season with today's episode. Is that incredible? It's amazing. So I want to welcome our guest, Mark Shapiro. He is professor of physiology and neuroscience at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center at San Antonio here locally. Hi, Mark. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you very much. So his lab combines um, biophysics, molecular biology, biochemistry, single cell imaging, all to identify mechanisms of ion channel modulation and regulation and the, the ramifications of all this on neuronal excitability and models of epilepsy, ischemia, and some other things, but mm-hmm. probably not going to get to those today. So today in the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And we've got Fidel Santa Maria. Hi. Well, this oh, is my like first that. podcast, so... Uh-huh. So we'll see how I do in my uh, my coming out party here. Yeah, yeah, this will be lots of fun. So we have lots to talk about. You you do have many different things going on in your lab, but I, I want to spend today's discussion kind of talking about your ongoing um, work on signaling complexes and, and their organization by its recent work on, on their organization by the scaffold protein ACAP, mm-hmm. which you're going yes. to talk about in a bit. So I want to spend a little time having you say something um, about this very cool macho multi-probe uh, super-resolution microscopy that um, that you've done to get at, at the spatial relationships between proteins in these signaling complexes. But before we do that, okay. can you just say something about the machinery of the signaling complex itself, like the various players, and where does ACAP, which is the A kinase associated, tell us what it is. So it's called A kinase anchoring protein, and there's a lot of different isoforms or types of these proteins, and although the first one was identified as bringing protein kinase A to its targets, which it phosphorylates, which is a very common switch that changes the function of a target protein. Um, And that's why they're called A-kinase anchoring proteins. It's been subsequently found out that they recruit a lot of other enzymes and signaling proteins to their targets that are not protein kinase A and can be not kinases at all, but the name still sticks. And the one that I study is called A kinase anchoring protein 79150. And that naming is just because in humans it has a molecular weight of 79 kilodaltons and in rodents it's 150 kilodaltons. But they do the same thing and they recruit the same repertoire of proteins over to a large number of target proteins, such as these iron channel proteins that I've been studying for a long time. Can I ask time. a question about terminology? Uh-huh. I know I'm not sort of out of term, but um, how can an anchoring protein bring anything exactly. to anything else? So I would think something called an anchoring protein would stay put. but it's often said they recruit things or they bring things to things. I would think that would be a motor, a molecular motor that would do that. Well, that's a good question. So 
maybe the term anchoring protein is a misnomer and uh, synapses, which is where uh, neurotransmitters jump the gap between neurons, there are proteins that act as anchors that collect a variety of proteins either at the presynaptic or postsynaptic side. And so these ACAPs, I think, are best called scaffold or scaffolding proteins. And that's what we often call them. Do they actively move to mm -hmm. traffic things, or do they just sit there and, and those things glomp onto them? I don't think they're trafficking proteins, uh, such as motor proteins like uh, kinesin or dynamin, um, but that they are, are not fixed in a certain place and that they are free, in this case, to move around in the plasma membrane. And when they uh, bump into another protein for which it has an affinity, then they bind with some affinity that is probably dependent upon what else is bound to the other protein or what else is bound to the ACAP. So some of the things that organize around these are ion channels, and you can tell us which ones those are, as well as um, phosphatases and other things. So can you just tell us about sure, what sorts of things sure. to so around these? It's quite amazing. So um, the field was um, one of the first uh, players was John Scott, who is now at the University of Washington. He was uh, at uh, the Volum Institute in Portland, Oregon. And um, over the years, it was shown that they interact with ion channels, with G-protein-coupled receptors that modulate the ion channels, with protein kinases that phosphorylate ion channels, with protein phosphatases that dephosphorylate them, with adenoate, or now called adenocyclase, that makes cyclic AMP, the first known second messenger, intracellular messenger, with calmodulin, a calcium-dependent signaling molecule, and with phospholipids, which are in the membrane, which is probably how these scaffold proteins localize to the plasma membrane and not organelles or other membranes inside the cell. So are these all primary interactions with the scaffold protein, or things just sort of come along and sort of build these uh, multi-level that, That's a very good question. That In some cases, it's pretty clear that it's a direct interaction. For some of the others, it's less clear. And you're right, because a protein isn't that big, and it's hard to imagine that so many other proteins could crowd around and directly interact with one scaffold protein. But like a scaffold that surrounds a skyscraper that's that's being modified or a construction zone, a lot of different pieces or items, pieces of equipment can be hung on the same scaffold. And so... It's, I think, I think like in a synapse, right? A synapse, you can have like these scaffolding proteins like pig and all these other uh, uh, smaller proteins. They are there. It's not that they are capturing, but one idea is that these, their zones 
outside the synapse where proteins are inserted. So, so it's like things are being delivered, and maybe they're just the, the diffusion area is way smaller in, in this, the spine head. And then the, the scaffolding proteins are there, and then there's a larger probability of being uh, fit in the puzzle and then the synapse forms, right? So that's one way. It's not that they are being delivered, they, they recruit actively, but the structure of the cell, uh, in this case neurons, is there to maximize that interaction. I think Fidel has a, is a, I think that's a really good analogy that people are sometimes surprised by these data I showed today with all these different proteins clustered together, yet everyone accepts even larger number of different proteins at the presynaptic and postsynaptic part of the synapse. In fact, that postsynaptic part is used to be called and still is the postsynaptic density because under a microscope you see this black smudge because of so many different proteins. So I think that's a really good analogy that I should probably use myself that that's neurons. It's not just a a grab bag of random molecules that it's organized in a very uh, specific spatial way in accord with the function of a particular nerve cell. I think that's really good. So you, so you found this association of ACAP with, so we know that it associates with N channels as well as trip V1 channels mm -hmm. um, and others and but the, it's not as though it's just sort of anchoring things and sitting there inertly. There are levels of regulation that you've, you've actually reported, uh, multiple levels of regulation that are sort of not possible without this anchoring function. So can you talk about that and also say something about whether, is this an active process that's sort of mediated enzymatically somehow by these scaffold proteins, or is it just something that has to happen just from them being sort of assembled together through ACAP? Do we know, what do we know about that? That's another again, a really good question. So today I showed two types of plasticity in nerve cells that are short-term and act rapidly and longer-term. So I talked briefly about phosphorylation of ion channel targets that would change their activity or their properties within seconds such as phosphorylation by protein kinase C or protein kinase A. And in fact, when you cross the street and suddenly see a bus coming at you and you feel your heart pounding in your chest and start to sweat, that's due to protein kinase A, the same kinase brought over to ion channels in your heart by the same ACAP that within a second makes your heart beat faster and stronger. So that's a fast action that hopefully, in the case of the bus, uh, goes away pretty quickly. But then I talked about these transcriptional changes that change the that change gene expression uh, in response to activity or abnormal activity, and we would expect that that would be a longer-term effect, a longer-term type of plasticity that might last days, weeks, months, or the life of the organism. And in that sense, it's a little bit perhaps like something called long-term potentiation that many people here at UTSA and around the world, I think, study, which people think is the basis of new, 
new memories where the synapses are changed in response to their use. And this can lead to long-term or even permanent changes in the wiring of the brain. And that's how we learn something. And so um, th those are examples of, of very different functions that are very different in terms of how long they last and how long they take to occur. So, I want to, so then I want, I want to talk about how you visualize these things too, but there's this whole other aspect now that these scaff this scaffold protein in particular is actually organizing multiple channel types that are sort of self-regulating super complexes. Yes. Do you want to say something about that? And then can we just start talking about how are you looking at these tiny resolution? I mean, it is angstrom resolution um, that you're looking at. Yes, it's uh, well. It's nanometer resolution. Angstrom uh, uh, would be uh, more something you might see with X-ray crystallography. So um, that's a little bit uh, beyond what we can see visually with optical light, with visible light. Sorry. Um, as to different ion channels being brought together for on purpose by cells for functional reasons, that was unexpected. And I didn't, hypothes I didn't hypothesize it ahead of time. Um, there were reports of clusters of the same type of ion channel protein being together in clusters for specific reasons. For instance, these calcium sparks that are necessary for proper contraction of smooth muscle and hard muscle. Now we know brain also, but I did not beforehand expect that different ion channel proteins would be brought together within 50 nanometers of each other, which is a very small distance where they could functionally interact. And, and that's almost like anti-canonical to how we are um, modeling and trying to understand the brain. I mean, we like uh, the Hodgkin and Huxley uh, approximation is, well, all these channels are independent and um, they don't talk to each other, right? So it's the same if you have one or if you have a million, uh, the spike gets generated, right? So there's no cooperativity. Being that close, you can start thinking, uh, no, it's not only that they're co-localized, like it's been taught about like calcium and calcium activated potassium channels in the synapse, just to get a, like a like a negative feedback uh, and control the voltage in the, in the spine, but here if they if they are tethered, right? Yes. Uh, then you can start thinking about cooperativity through interactions, like the resonance interactions. I mean, fifty nanometers is big, but but it's just two molecules apart, right? I mean, based on at the most, uh, right? Uh -huh. Right. So that's that's uh, that that. Um, could you think about true cooperativity, right, uh, uh, between the channels, not only these, these channels or compensatory feedback mechanisms? Right, and you start thinking about, well, there must be a reason for it. And, for instance, um, and again, we can look at the synapse where it's accepted that voltage-gated calcium channels directly interact with the, the exocytotic machinery that releases neurotransmitter and that the calcium ions flowing in through voltage-gated calcium channels, 
that open in response to action potentials, feedback and modify the very channels that are causing the influx of calcium in a, in a feedback mechanism. So, um, but in this case, one starts thinking in, to take the example of the channels in uh, pain neurons called, called nociceptors that express these trip V channels that sense heat and acid and uh, spicy food, that burning s- sensation in your mouth, that if they're right intimately associated with the certain these L-type voltage-gated calcium channels, and if it's known that L-type calcium channels are absolutely in- critical to regulation of gene transcription, then we start thinking, huh, probably painful stimuli, if repeated or maintained, will alter the expression of genes, which will alter the sensitivity of the pain sensing neuron. And since chronic pain is such a huge problem that has led to this opioid crisis epidemic, that's obviously very interesting because if we can manipulate gene transcription in these pain-sensing neurons and stop the pain at the source and not have to resort to centrally acting analgesics such as um, opioids, morphine, uh, hydrocodone, Percocet, and so forth and so on that has led to so much addiction, maybe that would be a much more effective treatment uh, for chronic pain sufferers. And in fact, I happen to know that drug companies are, as we speak, because we know where the TRIP-V channel interacts with this ACAP scaffolding protein, developing possible drug molecules that would interfere with that interaction, change the function of these TRIP-V channels that excite and start this pain signal and perhaps be the basis of local, of, of analgesics, novel analgesics that'll stop pain at the source, which would be a big advance in the field. So. But, but how much is it known? I mean, you're, what, if I understand, you're, you're suggesting that, that there's like a memory in the peripheral uh, nervous. There could be, right? That, that, that the sensors are the ones that are generating this, the signal, right? And then the nervous system is interpreting of, of the pain. Right. So, so can we? Uh, I mean, we can do um, synaptic plasticity, right? And right. we can undo synaptic plasticity. Right. So, is, is there some, is there anything known about that in the peripheral nervous? Like, I mean, this, the, reduce the sensitivity. We're right. So, Fidel, you're you're we're right at the cutting edge of what's known. So, um, plasticity of gene expression is just in its infancy. And even the work I showed today was looking at the cell body, the soma. These are what's called unipolar neurons, where the sensory nerve terminals, 
express a different repertoire of receptors and iron channels. And I have a colleague at Johns Hopkins who specializes in in visceral pain and analyzing the ion channels and the nerve terminals that innervate the organs like the lung and the heart. And he, he doesn't think that there are any M channels in the nerve terminals at all. But these, if the nerve terminals get excited and an action potential travels up the, the um, axon, it passes through the soma, these of the, the soma of these sensory neurons, and these somas can either act as an uh, amplification boost and increase the signal towards the brain, or it can act as a damp, a dampening and basically cut off the signal altogether. And if, in fact, uh, a collaborator, uh, Nikita Gamper at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom has been collaborating with David Jaffe here at UTSA, who has done some very elegant computational modeling showing mathematically precisely how the activity of some of these ion channels I've talked about today, such as M, uh, M channels and also calcium activated chloride channels, could completely stop the signal that is coming up from the nerve terminal or conversely amplify it and increase its power on its way towards the spinal cord and the brain. And so that kind of adds an additional layer of complexity yet interest in the whole field. Of course, it's very hard to study a nerve terminal because you know, in our patch cramp techniques, we can't patch a nerve terminal. It's, it's too small. Oh, there's some. Uh, this, not everything clumps with everything else. So there's conglomerations of molecules that all act together. Um, right. There must be a sort of finite set of combinations that work together and are supposed to work together. Right. You've been studying one of them. How many of them, how many of these different kind of scaffolding proteins are there that might organize different groups of, of ion channels? How many different kinds of, I mean, it's hard enough uh, just to, to uh, enumerate all the different ion channels and what their function might be. And now if we start making combinations of them and all the different signaling pathways, the thing seems to be getting sort of combinatorically dangerous. Are we never going to be able to know all of this, or are we just going to settle for studying one of them, or are we going to be able to make a catalog? Well, I think we will, So, but you're right. So I've just been talking about ion channels, but that's just one type of protein, one type of signaling protein. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I think there's about 30 or 35 different ACAPs. Some are in the plasma membrane, some are in the nucleus, some are in the Golgi, and they scaffold together different proteins for different reasons. And it, it it's a field which is well underway and of intense study. And 
and presumably some things are tightly connected mm-hmm. and some things are loosely connected and come and go. Well, I think if, if you take a kind of a biochemical approach to it, if you say uh, two proteins are bound, well, they're bound with a certain affinity. So it's a number. So if I, if I like Charlie by a factor of 100, then we're going to be interacting. <laughs> Just, uh, but if I like, then Fidel comes and we have an affinity of a thousand. And by the laws of biochemistry, I'm going to leave Charlie and interact with Fidel. And so in this, some of the first described intracellular signaling molecules, calcium, well accepted that calcium has different affinities, homogen, and so it's a game of, of biochemical affinities. It's not all or none. So depending upon the different state of the neuron, say, the arrangement uh, that I showed today could be completely different in a different state of the, of the, of the neuron. So you can have, say, a, a toxin that will kill someone in seconds. Uh, Charybdotoxin that blocks potassium channels, or uh, toxin found in some types of sushi, tetrodotoxin. They have nanomolar affinity, picomolar affinity. That's a very high affinity. But the proteins I've been talking about today at most have micromolar affinity, or maybe even millimolar. But you have, but you have really beautiful pictures, right? So, for example, today you showed us. A triple label of uh, trip channels as well as um, M channels and then the A cap scaffold, right? right? And right. so you're able to tessellate an entire cultured neuron. Yes. Know um, uh, those family, yes. I guess. Yes. And you're able to look at those spatial relationships and superimpose them. And you find that, for example, A cap is never really uncoupled. Yes. Right? Yes. But you do see that some trip channels are connected to some. Um, uh, M channels without a cap, right? But then you have the triple complex as well, and there are different sort of concentrations of those clusters, right? So, is there any structure in in those pictures that shows you how what what are the sort of things that are delimiting those interactions? Do you think it's just sort of energetic stuff? They just sort of bump into each other. The ones that are closer together are all sort of triple. I mean, what what do you think about about that? You look at these things a lot. So. Well. In the in the case that I, was, that I was talking about today, the ion channel that this ACAP likes the most is clearly these L-type voltage-gated calcium channels. If you scrutinize the data for more than a few minutes, then you'll see that only about half of the TRIP-V channels are paired with an ACAP, but much greater than 90% of the L-TAP calcium channels are. Now, it turns out in ongoing work, again in collaboration with Dr. Gamber, that there's another complex of proteins that have nothing to do with ACAP, but that includes TRIP-V channels with another plasma membrane channel and an ion channel that's not in the plasma membrane, but in the endoplasmic reticulum. 
And if you look at those data, which we're not ready to present yet, we find that that's about, that accounts for about the other half of the trip V channels that we didn't see with the ACAM. So how about that? So um, you can only see what you've labeled or what you're looking for and what you're not labeling, what you're not trying to look for, you won't see. So you've used the word signal assume. And I'm just imagining this multicolored like array of just dots interacting with each other. I don't know what you mean by signal assume, but you know, with all the beautiful connectome pictures, I'm just imagining all these interconnected signaling pathways just sort of intermeshed into one another. Sorry for that. No, um, I was just, it's just like an estimate. Like the fact that these clusters uh, or this interaction, for example, I think the, the L-type and SK channel, they were determined, I think with EM, it was just co-localization yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, analysis. Um, the fact that they are not pulled together when you do a Western, yes. right? while the, the, the postsynaptic density is pulled together, suggests that then the, um, the, the covalent bonds are relatively weak. I mean, they're... Right? Because it's a plastic thing. They wouldn't be surprised that these are highly dependent on activity, right? Right. So, because of, I mean, that's just bounding the problem. Right, right. Right. So, for instance, why is it that voltage-gated ion channels are called channels, but neurotransmitter ligand-gated channels are called receptors? They're both ion channels. Well, it's because the receptors were identified by using toxins with such high affinity that when you pull down the toxin, you pull down the channel. And that's the case of the acetylcholine receptor and the L-type channel used to be called the dihydropyridine receptor. And even this trip V channel that I'm talking about, when David Julius at the University of California at San Francisco discovered it, he called it the vanilloid receptor because it was a receptor for a class of compounds, including capsaicin, the, the hot chemical and hot chili peppers, called vanilloids. And so he called it VR1, vanilloid receptor 1. And these kinds of affinities are so high that, that they always come down. And they're not plastic. So if you put bungalow toxin, alpha bungalow toxin, uh, at, on the nicotine, on acetylcholine receptors. It just will not come off. This is not a, pl- a plastic thing. It has such a high affinity. And that's, that's. So when you what, say come down together, you mean they co purify? They co purify, yep. right, right. They, they, they co purify. This is not like the alpha bungalow toxin is going to decide to leave the acetylcholine receptor and bind to an L type toxin. traditional way that people told what molecule likes to associate with what molecule. Right. And that, and that, problem with it was that it only was sensitive to really strong associations. Mm-hmm, Whereas right. this uh, microscopic method that you use is just, it isn't challenging the association. Basically, if you are near another thing, we won't try to pull you apart and see how hard that is. We'll just notice that you hang out near this other thing. That's that's the essence of the difference. That was the, And that was the appeal of it to, to me is... And our lab, we've, we've done co-immunoprecipitations as well as a technique called FRET. And 
uh, other techniques called yeast to hybrid assays, which I, which is about the worst in my mind. But here, in, ter in terms of veracity or fidelity, um, but here, we're not trying to pull it together. It's just a snapshot, and these are not artificially expressed or induced. It's the, the endogenous proteins just caught where they are at the time, like a snapshot in time, and that's that's where they're associated with. So that's that's. So it's movie. a frame out of a movie. It would be kind of interesting to know what the whole movie looks like. Well, as I was telling your students, there are techniques of super resolution microscopy that they're doing just that. And so Eric Betzig, who won the Nobel Prize for starting super resolution microscopy, he has techniques that he uses at Genelia Farm in uh, Virginia where he's doing just so that. So they don't have to fix the tissue. So you the, the, the reason for fixing the tissue is because you're going to do immunocytic chemistry and the binding sites for the antibodies are inside the cell, not on the outside of the cell. Is that right? Well, the reason is that over the whole technique works because over a period of, say, 20 minutes or 30 minutes, the molecules have to be still within a nanometer or two. Because you're averaging over time. Because the computer has to say, this image at 10 o'clock is from the same molecule from this image at 10 minutes after 10, and this image from 10 minutes, 15 minutes after 10. So even if you could label them in a live cell, the things would be moving too much to do that. In this technique, it doesn't work, but there are other techniques <coughs> that accomplish nanometer resolution in living cells that that are being used that that I consider to be harder, but are being done. And I look forward to hopefully getting the opportunity to to try those. And next week at the Society of General Physiology meeting, which is the symposium is the revolution of light in neurobiological research from molecule to brain, where Eric Betzig is the keynote speaker. I will ask him, as he will do, if I can spend a couple weeks in his playground at Genelia Farm. And if you have at least one NIH grant, he will let you come for free for a couple weeks with full support and use his toys, his toys of the future, which is today. And I, that's what I hope to do. And uh, it's amazing. So... But I think with paint now you can track... I think it's paint, right? You can track like 50,000 trajectories at a time. But it's different, right? You, they enter the plane of imaging. You track those molecules and they disappear. Right, so then you calculate, you, you, you study something else, but I wonder if you can do it with multiple colors. Yes. And then you, you look at the, how many of the two colors appear together on that, on the surface of the, of the cell and they disappear. Yes. And then you can calculate it all, the, the density. Yes, yes. It's just a sign that the technology curve, as I was telling the students today, the technology curve is so rapid, and although I'm proud of our work using STORM and Storm nanoscopy. When I when I heard Eric Betzig's talk last year at the Biophysical Society meeting, I just felt so like an amateur. 
It's like, oh, I do my storm, okay. But he was showing stuff like like from Star Trek and Avatar and Jurassic Park and all wrapped into one, and it was mind-blowing. And so what's what's new today is, is obsolete tomorrow. Unfortunately, if I can just throw this in, and maybe Charlie and Fidel will agree with me, um, that I think a lot of times, like the patch cramp technique, when you introduced me today in this very elegant way and you told the students that I actually built my first patch cramp amplifier with about $500 worth of parts from Radio Shack on a circuit board. And um, now, of course, a new HECA, which is a, or axle patch, costs $20,000, and I shake my head. And But the students or the postdocs, or heck, faculty, they have no idea how it works. They Now it's computer controlled and they press a button. They have no idea what that does or at all. And so I often think, you know, if I can be whimsical for a second, space aliens came and snatched me to their planet and says, tell us your secret of the flat panel television. I would have no idea because I even know I use it every day. And that's even in science, it's become so automated. And even storm, as students come, they have no idea how it works. They just want to press the button. And I insist that they understand how it works, the science behind it, the mathematics right. behind it. Because if you don't know how it works, then it's you know, garbage in, garbage out. And we did a lot, a lot of controls to convince myself that this reconstruction actually was had fidelity so that I believed it. It's our PSA message for this episode. Kids, don't let that curtain go down. You know how your, <laughs> you know how your tools work. Um, we could probably spend another hour or so talking, but we'll have you back. You're a local. We definitely want to hear more. Um, I'm just, there's so many things to, to riff on, but another day. But thank you for joining us, Mark Shapiro. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much for joining us.